Well, good morning. God is good. And all the time. Amen. Well, it is a joy to be here this morning. Thank you so much for praying for my family as we took a week to the mountains this past week. And uh, I was able to take my bride from the beach to the mountains. And that is a miracle. And so I just thank you uh, for praying for us. It was a wonderful, wonderful time. I do have a few announcements for you. Uh, First off, our deacon nominations, they end on October 31st. So be praying over that. That's just one more week away. We have uh, next Sunday on the 30th and then Monday the 31st. And so if, uh, if the Lord's putting on your heart, go and speak with that person. Let them uh, look over the uh, qualifications of being a deacon. And then if they feel in their heart that they would like to be nominated, then please get that to us in the church office. I also want to share that Operation Christmas uh, shoebox. Uh, the boxes are in the lobby. The deadline is November 13th, and believe it or not, that's like three weeks away. And so we only have three more weeks, and we have several boxes back there. I hear that somebody took me up on my offer and tried to take a box from the bottom playing Jenga with all those boxes. But we got it fixed back up, and there's plenty of boxes for you to take back there. Um, and then also, so today, tonight, this, this evening, 5 to 7 o'clock, we're having, uh, our, our children's ministry is having trick shots and treats. And this is an opportunity for people to invite their friends, their family to come and be a part. It's going to be outside, having a wonderful time. Uh, this is in lieu of what we used to do was Glow. Right now we have this time where we invite family and friends to come and be a part, to come out and just have a, a wonderful afternoon and evening. Love for you to invite people to come and be a part. That's today from 5 to 7 o'clock, then that is in, uh, out front, uh, in the parking lot. So I do need to share with you, and I'll try to remind you of this when we go to leave today, but if you are parked in the front parking lot, and you want to go eat lunch and then come back to get your car, would you at least move your car out of the front parking lot when we go to leave before you go get food, because we're going to be setting up out there. Does, does that make sense? Awesome. I also want to share that we had 40 people who came and walked for Bibles last week. And I just uh, praise God for that. $4,000 was raised. Amen. Amen. And I did receive a picture that Brother Randy was out there walking, or at least I saw a picture of him sitting on the bench at the park. Um, so I praise God that, he, uh, that y'all all were there and wish a wonderful day. I'm going to go to the Lord in prayer as we begin our time today. Father, you are so good and we praise your holy name. Lord, I thank you for the time that you allowed my family to go and get away and just see the beauty of your creation. And Father, as I see the, the leaves changing, I'm reminded of the death the burial, and praise God, spring comes, the resurrection of your Son. And so, Father, I pray today that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. Father, I pray today that our hearts would be pure, our hands would be clean, so that we may ascend the hill of the Lord, that we may stand in your holy place. So, Father, today, may your name be lifted high in your name alone. We love you, we praise you, and we give you all glory. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. 
Good morning, Luke 418 Fellowship. We're so glad that you came to worship with us today. Uh, it says in 1 Peter 2.5 that you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. There's joy in this house today, and we sing. We worship the God who was. We worship the God who is. We worship the God who evermore will be. He opened the prison doors. He parted the raging sea. My God, He holds the victory. upon that cross and then he rose upon that grave my God Shot. 
Amen. We are in this house together. But the house of God is not these four walls. Amen. It is the people of God. And it is amazing that we even have the opportunity to come and sing these things to remind ourselves the gospel. That we were in need of grace so heavily that there was no way for us to come back to God. And then he gave us Jesus. He died on a cross, but that was not the end. He rose from the grave and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. But then we will see his face one day. And so until that moment, we will together lift his name together today. Let's stand. Why don't you welcome somebody around you and then we'll get started today in worship. today. Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I love to sing your praises. I'm so glad you're in my life. I'm so glad you came to save us. Sing it out today. You came from heaven to earth. Lord, I lift your name on high. One more time. You came from heaven to show away from the earth to the cross. My death came from the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky. Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I lift your name on high. Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine! Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. This is my story. 
as we continue. We have that assurance. If we are in Christ, there is nothing that can take us out of His hand. But that doesn't guarantee that life is going to be easy. That was never promised to us. But we do have a grace that is greater than our sin, greater than our past, deeper than our shame. And we can rely on that amazing grace we have in Christ. Sometimes I'm strong, sometimes I'm weak, sometimes I fall in my wandering. But through it all, there's just one thing more precious than the air I breathe.
priceless treasure, the one that we can follow after as a great and mighty and the only example that we can. You are the light of the world. We pray that we would carry you with us. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. We pray that we be salt and light to the world. And when we grow weary, we pray that we would run to you 
with everything that we have because you can sustain us, fill us up, and send us back out to do your good will. Pray that we would run to you, Father, today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I 
It is a joy to see our students in the choir. You know, amen. One thing that I share often with our team is that students are not the future of the church. They are the church with each of us if they are born again believers. And so having them have that opportunity to sing and what a beautiful song. I love that song, especially where it says, my heart needs a surgeon, my soul needs a friend. And I run to the Father again and again. For some of you here in this room, that may be as far as you hear today, because that's what you need to focus on, is that you need to run to the Father. You need to lay down the burdens that you're not called to carry alone. And we can lay those down because of the blood of Jesus Christ that was paid out upon the cross, and praise God, three days later, He rose again, conquering death, hell, and the grave. Today we're going to continue in the Sermon on the Mount and the six antitheses that we see in Matthew 5 at the end of chapter 5. And as we do this, we're going to pick up in verse 33. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, open up to Matthew 5, 33. And we're going to attempt to look at antitheses five and, four and 5 today. We'll see if we get through the fourth one and if we have time to finish number 5. But I want to remind you that order is important in the Scripture. God is a God of order. He started the Sermon on the Mount by speaking the Beatitudes. And the first Beatitude is, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For there's just the kingdom of God. And, and Brother Randy spoke on this last week, and I've shared it with you many, many times, that this is that place of salvation. When you come to a place that you have laid your life down, recognize that without Christ, without God, you are poor in spirit. You have nothing to offer, but praise God, He gives us life through His Son. Now, all the Beatitudes we see is the character of those who are in Christ Jesus. And then we get to this, this practical that's taking place throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. But I remind you of this because what I'm going to share today, and even what we've shared over the last few weeks, you can't do in your own power and your own strength. When we look at the practical, like the fifth antithesis is all about not desiring revenge against someone. Let me tell you, in our flesh, that is natural. But when we are in Christ and filled by the Spirit, we live a different life. Our life reflects the image and the character of God. If you come today and just simply hear, I've got to do this and I've got to do that and I've got to do this, you're going to walk out of here with legalism. You're going to walk out of here with a a bunch of rules that you can't fulfill. But if you hear today that those who are born again, Those who have surrendered their life to Christ, they're filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit gives them everything that they need for life and godliness. The Holy Spirit does a work in our life. And the Holy Spirit is what brings about this change. In Matthew 5, verse 33 and on, we see the fourth and fifth antithesis that Jesus is speaking of. He says this in verse 33, Again, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven or by, its th- by the throne of God. 
or by the earth, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond this, these is of evil. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that outside of the Holy Spirit, we cannot fully understand what is being spoken. So we pray the Holy Spirit, a promise, would illuminate the pages today to illuminate them in our hearts so that we may hear and obey Shema, what you are speaking. Now, Father, we thank you that we know that you are here with us today and that you will speak to our hearts. We want your name to be lifted high and glorified. For it's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. So we see here in the fourth antithesis that Jesus speaks about oaths. He speaks about uh, telling the truth. Now, when I was a kid, I always heard this. What a mighty web we weave when we what? Practice to deceive. Now, maybe the younger generation may have heard this. Cross my heart and what? And then they even said, stick a needle in my eye. Y'all remember that? You're like, man, like, really? Do we really? Did we really say that back in the day, right? What about like, hey, I pinky promise. Have y'all ever done that before? Students, have y'all ever done that? Or is that way past, is that my time? Yeah, y'all still do that? All right. So we recognize that we have a sinful nature that obviously has a difficulty in telling the truth. I'll never forget seeing this kid, this very young, like two years old, I won't name the kid, and, uh, but they had eaten some cookies from the cookie jar, right? And you begin to ask and you say, did you eat the cookies from the cookie jar? No, 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 I didn't. Nope. Are you sure you didn't? No, no, I didn't. Well, what's that all over your face? I don't know. Nothing. Well, those are cookie crumbs on your... uh, No, they're not. No, they're not. Like, even at the point that they're being called out and shown for the fact that they're lying, kids still are trying to say, no, 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 I didn't. No, I didn't. I didn't do that. I really didn't. What a mighty web we weave, right? When we practice to deceive. I was always told that it's easier to remember the truth and to speak the truth than to remember all the lies and keep that going, right? But it's interesting that we see here that even at a young age, our sinful nature is prone to lying. So why does God give this law to Moses about oaths? oaths? Well, the reason is because of our sin nature. It was first to show us that we must not lie, that we need to speak the truth. But it was also to tell the people of Israel that they didn't need to overuse uh, giving promises or oaths. Because they would give oaths oaths and promises for practically everything. 
And so God was given those parameters to help them see that their heart ultimately is sinful and their heart is that of those who are lying and they need to speak the truth. Now the Pharisees had a little bit more of an interpretation of this law given to Moses. See, the Pharisees took this and said, well, an oath to God must be followed through. You must carry it out. But an oath to an individual, there's a little bit of wiggle room there. Now, if if you don't truly believe that that's the case, let's go to God's Word in Matthew 23, 16 through 22. Jesus speaks of this and these woes to the Pharisee. And he says this in verse 16. He says, Woe to you blind guides who say, Whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. All right, stop there for a second. The Pharisees were saying that one oath didn't really mean anything, but this oath over here really does mean something. Then it said, You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold of the temple? The, that's the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold. And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he's obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering. Therefore, whoever swears by the altar, swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. What do we see here? But we see this legalistic view where the Pharisees were wanting to follow the law to feel like that they had made it, that they were good enough, that they were doing what God asked, but they were giving themselves wiggle room to get out of oaths and promises that they had made. For the, for the Pharisees, if you promise to God, you better keep it. But if you promise to an individual, there's a little way that you could get out of this or that. But then Jesus gives us that correct view of the law. See, Jesus isn't necessarily saying that oaths or promises are a bad thing. What he's saying is that they're not needed if your word is truth. If you speak truth, then there's no need for a promise or for an oath. You may say, well, David, what does God say about oaths and promises do we what about an oath of of office when you take an oath of office or or what happens if you stand in, in a trial and you take an oath are you allowed to take these well the scripture is the best place for us to look at and if you go to hebrews 6 13 through 18 we see god giving a promise so i want to look at this and the purpose behind it It says, for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so having sworn by himself, saying, I will... And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute." In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, 
so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. See, why did God give a promise or an oath here? Was it because God needed to prove that his word was truth? No. Why did he give an oath or a promise? He gave that because, and it says this right here in Hebrews, it says, he desired even more to show the people of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose. So why did he give that oath? Why did he give that promise? He gave it to the recipients, to the people, so that they could see so that they could recognize. God did not give an oath to show that, that he truly means it this time. He didn't give an oath to say, well, you know, like in the past it may not have been so truthful, but now this time is truthful. No, he gave an oath here. He gave a promise for the recipients, for them to see that, hey, he is unchangeable. It's because their hearts are the ones who have a human flesh nature. So is it wrong for us to give an oath in court or for us to give an oath whenever we are taking an office? I don't see that scripturally. Why? Because I think it's, I see that it's okay for us to do that. Why? Because we are speaking that so that the people who are receiving it, because their hearts don't know that we're truthful. But our everyday spoken word must be truth. See, there's no reason for us to need oaths and promises with one another and with others. Why? Because ultimately, if we're speaking the truth in everything that we say, then nobody's going to be concerned about whether you're lying or not. I was in the mountains this week, and I still feel like I'm breathing that thin mountain air. Um, And we were there, and I heard somebody on their phone, and they were talking, and I heard them say, no, I swear to, and they shared the Lord's name. And I wanted to go up and say, why did you have to do that? Why did you have to swear? Do you not always tell the truth? And then I wanted to ask them, do you truly believe in God or do you just use that? You know, I've heard atheists say, I swear to the Lord. And I'm like, really? You don't even believe he's real? So I guess that that doesn't mean anything. But we see that Jesus is saying that Oaths aren't necessarily wrong or bad, but what he's saying is there's no reason for them. And the reason there's no reason is because if your word is truth, then you don't have to put anything behind that for people to believe you. James chapter 5, 12 speaks of this again. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no is to be no, so that you may not fall under judgment. So what we speak, what Jesus is saying here is that it's not about trying to fulfill a legalistic law and then how can you wiggle out around it. Jesus is saying is that that it's the heart of the matter. Is your heart speaking truth? Is your heart speaking that which is correct, which is right, which is true? See, when you speak the truth, you reflect the image and the character of God. What does John 14, 6 say? It says that I am the way, Jesus speaking, I am the way, I am the what? The truth, and I am the life. 
Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth. When you speak truth, you're reflecting the image and character of God. The scripture says, God cannot lie. When you speak truth, you're reflecting his image and his character. But when you speak a lie, you're reflecting the image, the character of the evil one. Look at what it says in John 8, 44 through 45. Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees, says, You are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the what? Truth. But because there is no truth in him, whenever he speaks, speaks a lie. He speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak truth, you do not believe me. See, church, we have an opportunity That when we speak truth, we reflect the image and character of God. When we speak deceiving words or misleading things, we're reflecting the image of the one that we once were held captive to. The father of lies. Now, as we look at this, I want to take some practical understanding here. Now, these antitheses have a lot of practical, practical things to them. The first thing I want us to see in the practical is this. Say what you mean and mean what you say. Let me just say that again. It's one of my favorite sayings. Say what you mean and mean what you say. There's no reason to pinky promise. There's no reason to say uh, that I swear or I'm going to take an oath or I promise when our word is truth. But we also have to be careful that we are saying things that are not deceptive. Brother Fred always told me, he said, David, one thing I I want you to always learn and know as a pastor is speak to be heard and not misunderstood. Speak to be heard and not misunderstood. Now, just this past uh, Friday, I went down to New Orleans because I had an interview and I was telling somebody I had an interview in New Orleans. And they said, what, are you, are you leaving Luke 4.18? Why do you have an interview? And I was like, oh, um, let me say it in a better way. I went to New Orleans because I had an interview with the Department of Homeland Security for the global entry whenever we come back from Israel. And they were like, oh, okay, I get it now. Now, in that moment, I had spoken something that could have multiple meanings, right? Was my heart wrong in that? No, because I wasn't uh, focused in on trying to deceive someone, right? But praise God, they asked, hey, why are you having an interview? Because that's how rumors get started, right? Somebody makes an assumption, and next thing you know, things start going all over the place about this or that. Church, we must say what we mean and mean what we say, but we can't get so legalistic that we overthink everything because we're so fearful somebody's going to misinterpret what's said. The heart of the matter is the main thing. As long as your heart is pure and you're speaking that which is truth, even if somebody misunderstands it, praise God, God knows your heart. Another practical thing is is that there's no reason or you don't ever need to promise things or speak things that you have no control over. Now, you may say, David, I've never done that. Okay, let me give you an example of my own life. My wife and I were praying about whether I would run the 140-mile Ironman. 
I'd ran the half and I was praying over the, the 140. And my wife came to me and she said, David, I'm okay with you running the full Ironman as long as you promise me that you will not die. <laughs> me and my naivety said, okay, I have peace about running the Ironman. I promise you I will not die. Now, can I tell you, I promised my wife something I have zero authority over. I was running the race. I was eight miles from the finish line. It was really hot. I had drank way too much water. Didn't know you could do that. I overhydrated. I flushed all my electrolytes. I went into shock eight miles from the finish line. But I was determined to finish. And so I sat down and a, a medic came up to me and she said, Sir, if I administer aid, you're done with the race. And I said, Well, don't administer aid. Just tell me what's wrong. And she said, Well, you're going into shock and I think you're overhydrated. Which I think she was an angel because how in the world did she know that from just seeing that? So what did I do? I sat there for an hour and I drank electrolytes. I got up and I started walking the last eight miles trying to finish before the deadline at midnight. And I'm walking. Leslie didn't realize I had a whole another eight miles to go. She was telling everybody, hey, David's about to finish. And I still had eight miles. And I'm walking and all of a sudden this guy, who also was somewhat struggling towards the end of the race, started walking next to me. And so we start talking as we're hurting because we've been going for like 15 hours at this point. I don't know. And I started saying, sir, and you have to understand, if you've ran a marathon or a half marathon or if you've ran uh, an Ironman, you recognize that, that towards the end of the race, you're not really mentally all there, right? I mean, you're, you're just out of it, okay? And I said, sir, you don't know me and I don't know you, but I promised my wife I wouldn't die. Am I okay? He says, I don't know. And for the last eight miles, I wish I had got this guy's phone number so that we could like correspond because I don't, maybe he's watching. I don't know. He, I think he was from Texas area. But for the last eight miles, like every quarter of a mile, am I alive? I promised my wife I wouldn't die. And so for the last eight miles, what consumed my mind was a promise that I had made to my wife that I couldn't keep. Church, we must recognize that we don't need to speak things that we have no authority over. Listen, God's the author of life. He's the one who holds all things in his hands. Let's trust him. Let's trust him. Another practical thing here is that we don't need to promise God. You may say, whoa, that sounds, okay, I don't need to promise God. Let me help you understand this for a second. Because the scripture does talk about promising God. And it says that if you promise God, you, you better fulfill it. Okay? Now, I won't take you to the scriptures just for, for time's sake. But here's the thing. When we promise God, 90 plus percent of the time, and I just made that statistic up, but it's up there. Most of the time, why are we promising God? Because we want him to know we mean it this time. We want God to know, I really mean it. Let's just say you're, you're, you've been falling uh, into temptation with a sin. And you've struggled with temptation. And you're like, God, I promise this time I'm not going to do it. I promise this time, God, I'm not going to do this or that. Church, God knows your heart. 
Just do it. Just do it. Whatever you are going to promise God, just do that for Him. There's no reason to say, I promise. Why? You're doing that to ultimately justify in your own heart why you have struggled every other time. I promise this time, I really mean it this time, God. God knows my heart. I don't have to get into that dialogue. What I need to do is just say, I'm going to get in the Word and I'm going to do it. I'm going to step away from that temptation. I'm not going to fall into that anymore. I'm going to let the Holy Spirit come forth through me. I'm not going to sit here and say, okay, God, this time I promise. It's the same thing that kids do. I pinky promise this time. I swear this time. I mean it this time. Church, we must recognize That God knows our heart. And so what do we need to do? Just walk in truth. Walk in truth. Then there's another practical that I want to share today. And that is this. Don't get legalistic on this. Don't get legalistic. Somebody says, David, I'll meet you at 8 o'clock for breakfast. And they get there at 8.10. And they walk in and they say, I'm so sorry, please forgive me. I'm late. My word's not true. Well, Was your heart pure when you said 8 o'clock? Yes. Did you run into unforeseen traffic? Yes. So why are you asking me for forgiveness when you spoke that your heart was pure in the matter? Church, we must recognize that it's about God speaking to the heart here. But we can get so tied down with this legalistic idea. Listen, now if I say to you, I'll be there at 8, knowing good and well that there's no way and I will be 8.30, yes, I'm lying to you. And I need to repent. And I need to ask for forgiveness. But when your heart is pure and you're speaking something and you say, yes, I'll be there at this time or that time, there's no reason for us to, to, to be legalistic about this matter. God is looking at the heart. And we must speak truth. Church, the only way that we're going to speak truth is when we are in the truth, which is the Word of God. When God's Word is washed over us, we're not going to be concerned about speaking something that's deceptive or something that's a lie. We're not going to be concerned because why does somebody speak a lie or something deceptive? They're trying to gain something out of it, aren't they? Listen, if I come home late when I was a kid and my parents asked me what time... Did you come home? And I lied to them about it. What am I doing? I'm trying to gain not getting the consequences of that situation. But when we're in God's truth, we recognize we speak His truth. We speak truth in all things that we say. And we don't have to, to worry about what we're trying to gain. We lay that down and we say, God, I'm yours. I'm yours. But then he goes from speaking truth... To verse 38. And in verse 38, he says this. You have heard that it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, resist an evil person. Now, this is a very interesting statement. And probably one that people jump to in the Sermon on the Mount all the time. And you will hear people quote this and quote it very uh, incorrectly. Or they'll have the wrong understanding behind it. 
Now, first off, why did Moses, why did God give Moses this instruction? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. What he was saying, what God was speaking to Moses is that the punishment doesn't need to be greater than the problem. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Don't let the punishment be greater than the situation that took place. But the Pharisees took this, and the Pharisees' interpretation of this is that, um, is that this was not just simply for the court jurisdiction, but it was also for the, the Pharisees to use on an individual relationship which allowed them to seek revenge upon one another. They were able to say, well, listen, this scripture tells us an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And so therefore I can seek that towards someone else or another individual. When God was specifically saying that a punishment from the court system cannot be or does not need to be greater than the situation or the crime that took place. See, the individuals, the the Pharisees were using this as a way to wiggle around the law so that they could have revenge or frustration or anger towards another person. But Jesus gives us the correct understanding. Now, Jesus is not speaking against the court's use of this. Jesus is not saying that there needs to be no punishment. Jesus is not saying that there needs to be no type of correction or consequences for actions. But what Jesus is speaking here is to the individual relationships and the heart of the believer. The heart of the believer. Now, Matthew 16, 24 through 26 speaks this, sums it up very clearly. It says this in Matthew 16, verse 24 through 26. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He continues on in verse 25. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus is speaking here in this fifth antithesis and he's saying that ultimately you are called to to lay down yourself for the kingdom of God. And what he's speaking here is that your sin nature is going to desire revenge. Your sin nature is going to desire to defend yourself. Your sin nature is going to desire to hold on to everything that you have. Your sin nature is going to to call you to desire to just do what you have to do but nothing else. And God's saying, hey... Let your yes be yes in your tongue and let your actions be filled by the Holy Spirit. Lay your flesh down. And so when we get to the practical of this fifth antithesis, we see that ultimately there's four things that Jesus is speaking here of them to remove of self. Now, when we look at at removing of self, there's many, many things that we can look at. But we're going to look at these four things that he speaks here so clearly. First, he says in verse 39, But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now, for some of you, you take that very literal. Okay, I got hit, so here, hit me again. What Jesus is speaking here 
is that in a human's heart, not filled by the Spirit, not yielding to the Spirit, when they get hit, they desire revenge. Jesus is telling us that we must lay down that flesh and not seek revenge. Romans 12, 17 through 21, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. Church, you know in your heart that our flesh naturally longs and desires for revenge. When something happens to us, Our flesh gets frustrated and angry and mad. And if we boil on that, guess what's going to happen? We're going to go back and repay the other person for what's been taking place. As I was preparing this message, this proverbial statement kept coming to my mind. Revenge is a dish, what? Best served cold. Many of y'all have heard that. I said, what does that mean? What does that mean? So I googled it. And there was a lot of meanings. But the one that continued to to repeat itself more than others was this. The meaning of this phrase is that taking revenge at a later date is more satisfying uh, to the person. Taking revenge later means that you have time to premeditate your revenge to perfection. Instead of acting in haste. The saying means that the longer you wait to take revenge, the more satisfying it is when you do it. Church, isn't that interesting? The longer that somebody sits and stews and and dwells on what's happened, that they would premeditate so that they could go and, and do something that would be at least at the same level of what was done to them. And Jesus is saying... That's not what the church looks like. Jesus is saying that when somebody hits you on the the right cheek or on the cheek, you turn the other, meaning that you're not going to dwell on anger and bitterness and frustration and all these things that roots up inside of us. Church, I told you at the beginning, the only way that we can live this out is if what? We're filled by the Spirit. My... My flesh still has those moments where it's prone to wander into anger and frustration. I can't believe that person said this. Or I can't can't believe they did this. or, Or I'll get back with them on this. But when we're filled by the Spirit, that anger and that bitterness and that frustration is laid down. There's another thing that Jesus says, and then I'm going to combine these two. He calls us to remove self when it comes to defense. Look at this in verse 39, or in verse 40. If anyone wants to, take, wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. In this moment, somebody is being sued and, and Jesus is saying, hey, there's no reason to defend your honor and your name in this moment. The Message Bible, which I very seldom quote, but I want you to hear it because I think it says it great today. It says this, if someone drags you into court and sues for your shirt off your back, gift wrapped your best coat and make it a present. 
presented. We are called to speak truth, church. But the heart in speaking truth cannot be focused on protection of your name. God knows your heart and we live for an audience of one. Here's what happens all the time. We get so defensive. We're so afraid of what people will think of us because of this or that. And God's saying, I know your heart. Trust me. I'm the only one that matters. That doesn't mean you don't speak truth. But if your heart is focused on the defense of yourself, if your heart is is focused on revenge or getting back at, then we missed it. Let me give you an example by tying these two together. That God tells us to lay down the flesh of revenge and anger and bitterness. And he also calls us to lay down this natural defense. That defense mechanism. I'm not talking about physical defense. We'll talk about that in a minute. I'm talking about defense of your name or your honor, so to say. Jesus being tried in Matthew 26, 59 through 68. Now the chief priest and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, Do... Do you not an- the high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is this that these men have testified against you? But Jesus kept silent. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of the heavens. Then the high priest tore his robe and said, He is blaspheming. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered, He deserved death. And look at what they did to him. Then they spat in his face and beat him with his fist, with their fist. And others slapped him. By the way, that word slap there is the same word that's used in Matthew chapter 5 about when you get slapped on one side, turn the other cheek. And said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you. Church, we look at this and we see both of these examples. When they were accusing him and coming against Jesus, what did he say? He said nothing. Because he knew that God the Father knew his heart. He knew before God he was pure. And so he stood there and said nothing. But when he did speak, what did he speak? Did he speak, let me tell you, let me defend myself? He simply said, what you say is true. I am the Christ. He spoke truth. Jesus did not try to defend his character. He simply spoke truth. Jesus had a heart of compassion and mercy, not a heart of malice, anger, revenge, our defense. Charles Quarles speaks it well. He says this, Jesus himself was the perfect model of this gracious response to the abuses of others. He was mocked, sped on, beaten, 
uh, was sticks, slapped, scourged, and nailed to a cross. Nevertheless, he endured all without retaliation and even with forgiveness on his lips. Never is a disciple more like Christ when he responds to abuses graciously and without retaliation. Church, we must lay down the flesh, the desire to get back at someone and be filled by the Spirit. Church, we must lay down the defense mechanism. I have to defend my name. God knows you. The creator of the universe. He's intimately acquainted with all your ways before you were even formed in your mother's womb. He knew everything about you. Do we live for an audience of one? Now I want to be very clear, as I said just a minute ago, say what you mean and mean what you say. Some may say, well, this tells me that I'm not supposed to practice self-defense when someone comes against me or my family. That's not what I'm saying. And I don't believe that that's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is speaking to the heart. If you're protecting your family or others from a bad actor, I doubt that in that moment you're seeking revenge. Or that you're trying to defend your honor or your name. Listen, just to be very clear with you, even here at Luke 4.18, we have a security team. That in the event of a bad actor or somebody coming in, they will protect. Why? Because this scripture doesn't tell us not to have self-defense when somebody comes physically against you. What it's telling us is that our heart cannot be for revenge, anger, malice, and it's not to be about all the defense of who I am because we are whole in Christ. So why do we have a team even here? Because I believe that God has given us the wisdom to do that. Danny Aiken says it this way, The guiding principle is is showing neighborly love and putting away the heart of anger, malice, and revenge. Justice and forgiveness are not mutually exclusive. Then there's another practical point here. The removal of self and only doing what's required. You know, the Pharisees, they, they just, as long as I'm doing what's required, I'm good to go. As long as I'm fulfilling the law. The problem is, is that they weren't even doing that. But they had justified in their mind that they were. It says this in verse 41. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, being very transparent with you as I was studying, I learned some of the context and culture. It was really cool. I I didn't realize that when the Romans were in control during Jesus' day, that if a Roman soldier commanded you to carry a load for a mile, you were required by law to drop what you were doing, pick up that load, and carry it one mile for the Roman soldier. Jesus, speaking to the Jews in that day, says, listen, when you are called to go a mile, don't just go one. Go two. Now, think about this. Can you imagine? The, the flesh is saying, is going to be murmuring and frustrated and, oh, these Romans. These Romans are in charge and they can just tell me to go a mile and I have to carry all this. But for one who is poor in spirit, 
One who is humble. Jesus is telling them to do this joyfully. And not just that, but go above and beyond. Danny Aiken says that obligation is what dictated the first mile. Compassion dictated the second mile. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way. He says, the Lord is saying, if you are doing that job and the soldier comes along and says to you that you have to carry his bag for a mile, not only do it cheerfully, but do it the second mile. The result will be that when you arrive, the soldier will say, who is this person? What is about him that makes him act like this? He's doing it cheerfully and going beyond his duty. And they will be driven to this conclusion, this man is different. He seems to be unconcerned about his own interest. As Christians, our state of mind and spiritual condition should be such that no power can insult us. What a powerful statement. Church, do we simply just say, well, I have to do this and I have to do that, so so I'm just going to do this? Or do we say, no, I'm going to to do all things for joy unto the Lord. And I'm going to go above and beyond so that people see it's the power of the Holy Spirit within me. It's not just simply man's act. But then we see one last point that I'm going to share very quickly. And that's in verse 42. Give to him who asks of you. And do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. This is very interesting. Jesus is saying here that there is the removal of self in possessions. It's the removal of self in possessions. Our natural human tendency in the flesh is to hold on to everything that we have. It's to hold on and to protect Everything that we have. And God, Jesus is saying here, no, it's the heart behind it. Who's your provider? God is. 1 John three seventeen through 18 But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Now, I have to be very clear here and tell you that this does not mean that you give to somebody in order to enable them in sinful practices. And even it doesn't mean give to somebody who's not willing to step up and take ownership of what's taking place. Paul even said that if you don't eat, I mean, if you don't work, you don't eat. But what is the heart behind this? We'll talk more of it in chapter 6. But quickly, let me just share with you that the heart behind this is that we must not say when I give, what's in it for me? And our heart must be motivated to help those in need because in our greatest moment of need, we found Jesus. Our greatest moment of need is salvation because we were headed to hell. And God said, I'm not asking for anything from you. I'm giving my son to pay the whole price. And the question is, will you receive it? And because we reflect the image and the character of God, we hold everything that we have very loosely. Now, I was always told that when you hold your hands like this, you may be holding on to what you got, 
but you can't receive anything like this either. But when you hold your hands wide open and you realize that everything you have is God's, and not only that, but everything that you have is God, but he's also your provider, then when we see a brother or sister in need, we're willing to give, to help, as we reflect the image and the character of God. Church, we see a lot of practical things in these two antitheses. We see that we must speak the truth because we have a heart that loves the truth, that loves God, that reflects his image and his character. We see that we must lay down the flesh. We must lay down the things that are, that are so easily just trying to overtake us because of the sinful nature. But I must say this as I close, we cannot do that in our own power and our own strength. But that's the beauty Is that because we can't do that, that when we live this way, we're showing the world Jesus. We're showing the world the Holy Spirit. We're showing the world the power of Christ because our flesh can't live this way. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can. And so it goes back to that word that we've used a hundred times. What is it, church? Abide. We must abide. We must dwell. We must delight in God's word so that we are overwhelmed and consumed by the Holy Spirit of promise. That the Holy Spirit lives this life in and through us as we yield to Him. You may see several things this morning that you say, I need to work on. I need, uh, this, this really hit me. I need to do this. I need to do that. And the answer is yes. But before you say, I need to go and work on this and work on that, I challenge you today to simply fall on your face before holy God and say, I can't, but you can. To say, God, I can't do this. I've tried, but you can. And so, Father, I lay my life before you and I receive the Holy Spirit of promise who says that you will give me everything I need for life and godliness. And I'm going to walk in your truth. I'm going to speak truth. And I'm going to have a heart that's focused in on you and you alone. Church, may we live this life that Jesus is so speaking clearly is opposite of the world to show the world who Jesus is.